0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Turn your Bibles to Joshua 8. We're starting in verse 1, working through the the text to verse 29 today. Before we get into it, I want to stop again. I know we just prayed. um, I'd ask you to pray with me as well. Remember that the Spirit is the only one that gives life, and not my clever words or lack of being clever can change your hearts or help us to get any closer to God, it must be him who works. So if you'd pray with me for a moment and ask God to meet with us, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is truth. And we ask that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and Father, that we would be doers of the word, not hears only. We need your presence and your constant work in us. I pray that you give us faith. Give us soft hearts that are willing to repent of sin, and to take ourselves off the throne and put Jesus there, God, I I need your help. I pray that you would speak the words through me, your servant, however you f- see fit. And Lord, that you would change hearts for your sake of your glory. We love you, and we pray your glory be shown today in Jesus' name. Amen. I have four children. Um, they are sinful and wonderful. Um, they are cute and disgusting. They are infuriating and endearing at times. Um, And they are determined, but often weak. Uh, They think they can do stuff that they can't quite do. They're always using lately a lot of superlatives, uh, like the greatest and the best, or EST at the end of whatever it is. Like, Dad, what is the fastest car in the world? Like, I mean car, Dad. I know the fastest truck in the world is your truck, but what's the fastest car in the world? Um, Or, Dad, what's the biggest Fish in the world. Let's ask Siri, what's the biggest fish in the world? Or um, like this one, I don't know exactly how to do this. He's like, what's the fastest cheetah in the world? Like somehow I know which cheetah is the fastest one. Um, But they always try to talk in like these big ways to understand like the best of whatever it is. They talk about the biggest things and it comes out very clear when we play Would You Rather. I don't know if you guys have played this game, but you know, one of the ones we heard last week was, would you rather catch the biggest fish in the world and get the world record or swim all day at the Y. Like, that was the would you rather. Or the one that we really love, from Evelyn, my youngest, who's three, she goes, would you rather have a really, 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 really big house? Or would you rather have a really, 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 really big pancake? And we realized that Evie is like, when she's doing this, when she starts at the reallys, she doesn't know what she's going to say yet, but she's going to get there. And once she picks it, that's in the really slow down and she nails it. So I'm probably not the, the only one. I'm sure your kids do similar things because they're very concrete thinkers and trying to understand. They think that I can also do great feats of strength or other adult men. Dad, if, could, you think if you really tried hard, could you pick up the house? Like you think you could do that? Now, Afton doesn't say that, but the younger ones. And, like, and I say, no, I really think I could not do that. Like, what about Miss Brenda's house? There's only one person in that, not all the people in our house. Like, do you think maybe then? No, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, they are very straightforward thinking, very concrete. Uh, and, they, and their, their world is, is limited in some way and very, uh, pretty, pretty concrete. Uh, Hudson came into the kitchen the other day, and I was standing there and talking to Kristen, And he comes over and he's, we're at this stage, I don't know if you've either been through this stage or you're in this stage with kids or you've seen this before, but they're at this stage where they want to come over and they want to pick me up and they want to see if they can do it. So Hudson, I mean, it's a a great stage. It's a little bit awkward, but I mean, it's a great stage. They're they're really doing their best. So Hudson came over and I was talking to Kristen and uh, he wanted to try to do this. So of course he grabbed around my lower thighs and then gives us the heave-ho and tries to pick me up. Well, I'm standing kind of, Like at the back behind me is the counter, and I've got two counters coming together. So when he did this, I just kind of put my hands on it, and I lift it up off, and he's, you should have seen his eyes. He's like, Mom, did you see what I just did? Dad was up like three or four inches. I lifted him up, and I'm like, you better try it again. So he tries again, and he gets down there, and for sure enough, he's pulling me up, and he's like, I did it again, so the third time he's getting up there and he's ready to go, and this time I just take my hands off a little bit. I'm like, "All right, go!" And he's like, and "He's like popping blood vessels and like giving his all, which I just love." And I'm like, "Oh, you got to try harder." So one more time. So sure enough, he goes around one more time. Bear hugs my legs and he goes, and he bluffs up, and I I pull him up, and he's like, "Same, same reaction." Did you see that? This is the greatest day of his life. Uh, And if you know Hudson, he gets that mischievous little proud grin on his face. He's like, I I did it. You know, that's pretty good. Now, why did I tell that story to start the sermon? Oftentimes, when we are told, perhaps, in a sermon or by the Bible to do something, we do it and expect a certain outcome of it. We kind of know what's coming. We kind of hope that we do this, and this is what's going to come out on the other side. And as a result, usually, whether we can see it perfectly or not, we try to do something, and there's some sort of a result that comes out. That's somewhat natural to us. We think of this as normal. We're told to serve throughout the scriptures, So if we serve, it'll be a blessing to somebody else, and it will help them in some way. Or if we're told to give, and when we do so, it's a blessing to the receiver, and they receive that gift, and it's a good thing for them. Or we're told to witness, perhaps, and we do so. When we do it, a life that is a tr- someone that's got a, a true hearer of the word their life is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or we're told to you know, uh, treasure the word and meditate on the scriptures. And when we do, we grow and we are changed by the scriptures over and over. What we're seeing and noticing is a command and obedience and result type structure. When God gives us command, we obey, and we expect some sort of specific result. We're not surprised by that. That, that seems to us very natural, something that just happens because we did it. And we served, we gave, we witnessed, we meditated. But like Hudson, being told to pick me up when it was actually me in the background pushing up, oftentimes we cannot see the Father, that He is the one who is actually behind the scenes doing the gracious work to make our obedience effectual. From the beginning to end, from initiation, carrying us through to the actual result that it was the Father all along who continues to work through his Holy Spirit for his grace to have some sort of effect in our lives. Now, when we think about this, we, 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 we're a little overwhelmed because we can't see him. We don't know exactly what to think about this. But in other words, when we look at this, what we think, if we're not careful, though, if, if we don't think about this each time, we kind of end up thinking like Hudson, that we are really, 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 really strong, without the true eye on the one who actually empowered us the whole time. In reality, it's been all along. Our great God who has carried us along and done the work in us as we trust and love and obey and enjoy him. Now, every analogy breaks down. I'm not here to preach a story about my son. Um, So I think there's a better way to talk about this, a more authoritative way, um, a more realistic way, and maybe even a more biblical way. Take a look at Joshua 8. We've come to this juncture here. We've finished up chapter 7. We see that now that there there's, comes off the, the heels of the destruction of Achan in the Valley of Achor, we just learn how serious God was about sin and covenant faithfulness. And Up to this point, we've only seen Joshua and the people through the first six chapters, obedience, 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 over and over again. And what we're seeing is prosperity. And we're seeing success. and We're seeing them follow this God. We learn that even the most Jewish of Jews, though, in the midst of this, if their real heart problem is unbelief, it will not please God. And in the midst of that, we realize that this stains the whole nation because of his unbelief that drew him out to actually steal and covet and hide. After dealing with the sin of Achan properly then, if you remember this, according to the word of the Lord, the Lord turned away from his burning anger against the Israelites this whole incident really rocked the people altogether. It rocked the leadership. If you remember, like, the, the elders and Joshua go and they lament and they throw dust on their heads and they go up before the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant and they're crying out and lament. What happened? What in the world? They see what happened around them. It was totally unexpected. The men from Ai come back with running, with their backs turned to their enemies. There's a report of 36 men who have died and Joshua and the elders properly lament and ask God what happened. This was not the result that they were expecting. God had told them that he would be with them and that they would have good success, that they would be able to take possession of the land. And instead, what we learned last week is actually two weeks ago, they were met, instead of success, with loss of life, with defeat and now with a broken reputation in a land of hostile enemies who would want nothing more than to crush Israel. Their hearts melted and became as water. They were afraid. And kind of seems to make sense why they were. The rest of chapter 7 is all about getting the nation right with this covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. They had to punish, reject, and execute this man. They had to have the sin removed from their presence. But as we finish chapter seven, it's no wonder that we see that the Israelites are a little gun shy, that they're a little scared of what could possibly happen. We feel it just like they did, as they realize the task that they have ahead of them is a daunting one, and they have finally met with some sort of defeat. We are still commended to rise, go, and take possession of the land. That's what we see here is happening. But now there's this understanding that it may not be as easy as we thought. How is it possible that this little outpost, I, this tiny little place, was able to overcome us, the one who had God on our side? How did that happen? How could it be? So through the the revelation of Achan's sin to Joshua and the people, and then the instructions to rid the camp of wickedness, the people of Israel are taught that Yahweh is dead serious about covenant faithfulness. But that question in the back of their mind still looms after this is over. After they go out of the Valley of Acor, will this ever happen again to us? Is it possible that there's another Achan among us who is truly unfaithful and would choose that which does not please God? Wouldn't that scare you as well? I mean, you know that you just experienced this and no one knew why it happened. And now you know you have to go back to I and do the same thing. What is to happen here? The commandment from the Lord is, 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 in one sense, a huge breath of relief because this is the gentle Shepherd Yahweh says this in chapter eight. Listen, and the Lord said to Joshua, "Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to I. See, I have given into your hand the king of I and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king." only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. In the opening paragraph here, we should notice the loving kindness of our God. The first thing that he says, knowing their situation, he says, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Where is he taking us to with that statement? Where have we heard that before? Was it not all the way back to chapter one as how he said, we're gonna go into this land. I am going to give it to you. So you ought not to be afraid, you ought not be dismayed, I will be with you. This is verse 9 of chapter 1. The rest of Joshua 9 tells us that. He says, not only don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, but I will be with you. Joshua and the people hear again, afresh then. This is God's grace to them, reminding them. Don't we have to preach the gospel to ourselves and remember the goodness of God that we need? This This is grace to Joshua to remind him, you do not have to be afraid, I will be with you. Not only that, he instructed about fear, but then he reminds him that the land is Yahweh's to give to Joshua and the people. And so what we're seeing is actually God go all the way back to the beginning and say, remember the God that I was then? I'm the same God. This tells us a great deal about this God and his character. We'll mention it later, but I mean the amount of forgiveness that he gives to his people and the covering of sin because of what happened in the Valley of Achor, but the grace that he would give to restore his people to this relationship. It's, a, it's beautiful. And now, here it is. We see that he says at the end, what does, he, what does he say about giving? I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as they did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Not only did he give him the victory, but look at all the other stuff that he gets there. Do you see that? He says, the people, the city, and the land. And then if you go down to the bottom, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Now this Yahweh not only is giving victory, but now he's giving gifts to his people. It helps us understand even more so that what Achan did was not the problem it was just only a fruit of the real problem, his unbelief and his disobedience of God's word. Plunder and spoil were normal, but in this case, God had said, do not take any of it. And now here I, we see him say, take it for yourselves. God is good and gracious. One more thing here also at the end of this little, these two verses, God says to him, lay an ambush against the city behind it. Okay. That seems like a small detail, not a lot of detail there for us, but okay, there it is. You know, land ambush against the city behind it. So we plunge now from the second one to being from the, from the first battle of I now to going into the second battle. With all this history now of what's happened in the valley of Acor, let's read from verse 3 to 17. That's a bit long, so when I read it, it's okay to listen along, but let me give you a little bit of a field guide for a moment. The problem here is that you and I are Americans and we kind of are bad at reading um, any sort of Eastern literature. What's going on here is not chronological. We're going to see, and it's going to frustrate you about the numbers, and say, what's going on here? We did the same thing in chapter three and four. If you remember going back there, we had a lot of different jumping around. Let me give you and explain a little bit of what the author is doing so that we're not confused. In verses three through nine, we have the main aspects of the preparations for the battle. Joshua is telling the soldiers how this is going to go, and they're settling into the plan, putting it in motion. Then when we get to verse 10, it's where the the battle actually begins in the morning, the start, the commencement of it the next morning. But then in verses 11 through 13, we get this interesting little flashback that is going to show us detail about what happened through three through nine. That will help us then understand in greater detail why these things are important. Then we hit verse 14, and the narrative picks right back up where 10 left off. So that's kind of the structure here. So don't be confused by verses 11 through 13. It is giving us greater detail. Let's go ahead and start. We'll try to work through. Verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall, arise, shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now the next morning, verse 10, Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. Now, a flashback. And all the fighting men who were with him went up, drew near before the city, and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was on the north side of the city, and the rear guard was the west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the, v- in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, this is the next morning, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua... They were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Now, Joshua has obeyed the command of the Lord. This is exactly what he told him to do. Now, there's more detail here that we're getting. All we got from the beginning was set an ambush. But now we're getting all this detail. He set a trap on the west side of the city, an ambush of about 5,000 men while he and the remaining 25,000 men are approaching on the north side of the city. This is happening in, under the cover of darkness of night. About 30,000 troops are moving towards the city. At an appointed spot, he breaks off the 5,000 and moves them forward to settle into the west side and to hide there so they cannot be seen. Remember, this is an ambush. This is a ruse. This is trickery. The 25,000 left on the north side spent the night there in the valley wanting the spies from Ai to actually see them. Want them to bring that intel back to the king and the king responds perfectly. He, He sees this and he rushes together. If you see that, he says in early, he hurries, even goes out early to set up battle against Israel. The plan has begun to work. It is doing what we're supposed to see. The warriors of Ai are eager to meet this force head on thinking to themselves to be very courageous men courageous men. remember, they beat them once already. They, if they, were just ha- they remember what happened a few days ago, and they beat them. So now they're empowered. Now they're courageous. now they're like, "Let's go out and beat these guys. It's OK if they're like almost twice as many as us, but we're going we're to take these guys. They're ready to do battle against their enemy, but they have no idea what's on the west side of the camp, this ambush of about 5,000 men, hidden poised to swoop in, capture, and burn the strong place, the defense, the city of Ai. The battle begins, and it almost seems like immediately they run away. Uh, we, where we see these details, they turn their backs and they retreat, running away from the men like of, of Ai, just like the first battle. Seeing the advantage then, the opportunity to wipe out even greater number of Israelites, the king calls all the rest out, all the fighting men that are in eye, and says, come out with us. They all come out of the city to chase after Israel. The narrator says that the city was left wide open, almost like a bank vault door wide open because all the tellers were out the front door taking care of it and pushing everyone back, having no idea that under the counter of the, where the tellers sit are the robbers, that they sit there unaware. Everyone's outside ready to go. The ruse has done exactly what it's supposed to do. Every fighting man is now out of the city onto the wilderness battlefield, chasing Israel across this ravine. What will happen? Verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to the heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and the others came out of the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was none, left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. I am not sure how this exactly happened. We don't need to know the exact pieces, but I can tell you this. In the midst of 25,000 soldiers running away and retreat, the Lord speaks to Joshua. And he tells him, it's at this time, to take the javelin that you have and stretch it out in your hand toward I, and the Lord will give I into your hand. He's purposely making this. He's making this connection here. In this symbolic signal, Joshua is told to communicate to the, the, to the ambush to move in on the city of I. But in so doing, the Lord again is kind and gracious to tell him that he is giving the city into Joshua's hand. As that javelin is in your hand, so I have given the city into your hand. The ambush moves in. They capture the city and set the signal fire. The soldiers eventually stop as they notice the billowing smoke clouds rising from the city of Ai. Now, you've got to picture this. Both sides of the fight stop when they see this. And it's almost like, if you've ever played capture the flag this lot as a kid, you run and you're trying, to, you're trying to catch somebody and you go way, 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 way in. And all of a sudden you realize that none of your teammates are around you and like the line is way back there. And all of a sudden everyone goes, oh, and the whole place reverses. And we sprint back and everyone on that side starts to come. That's what's happening here. We're watching, the signal is lit. Now they're freaking out. They know that they have no place to go and they have to go away because they know either something's gone terribly wrong in their city, which it has, or they're in big trouble and it was all a ruse from the beginning, which it was. And they realize that they must get back. The pursuers begin to flee and the ones that were originally fleeing turn and pursue now. But there's a problem. As the men of Ai look back, what are they met with? Soldiers from the opposite team. We have Israel standing in front of their city. They are completely surrounded. Now we have Ai in the midst of Israel, surrounded on every single side. And Of course, there's no chance for these men of Ai. The narrator tells us then that Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. The only person that is not killed immediately was the king. And what happened there is he was brought to Joshua so that Joshua could teach a lesson. Now, not that Joshua was teaching him a lesson. He was going to kill him. He was teaching us and Israel a lesson through this this killing. Let's continue. Look at verse 24. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai. And struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord Joshua commanded. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. In these closing verses, we watch as Israel finishes off every one of the soldiers in the wilderness. And then they turn to the city. They march to the city. They obey the word of the Lord and they kill every being, every person, every inhabitant. I know we're just getting another one of these battles, but don't let that become passé to us. We're talking about them not just in some old battle that everyone battles and kills. God told them to devote them to destruction. Remember, it is their judgment. And what we're seeing there is actually Israel obey their God. 12,000 people, all of I is dead. I just want a quick look, a little quick note here at verse 26. Like if I was Joshua and the Lord told me to put up the javelin, I would, first of all. But I would think as soon as the signal is set and you got things going on and the the whole thing is turned around and now we're reversed again and we're attacking, I would think I'd put like my javelin away. I don't know where you put a javelin, like on your back or I'm not sure if you just carry it with you. But he, he doesn't do that. Look at verse 26. Instead, we hear it reported that Joshua did not draw back his hand until all the inhabitants of Ai were destroyed. Almost like Joshua was going to hold God to his promise. Like he's not going to stop. He's going to hold and wait and wait until every last one of them is done. He's so fervent in his obedience that he wasn't satisfied just after they turn back. Joshua is desperate to see God do his work. He wants to see and hold God to what he said he would do. And make no mistake, he remembers the battle against the Amalekites. If you remember this, he fought against the Amalekites while Moses took the staff and held it in the air. If you remember this, whenever the staff was raised in the air, Israel prevailed. And as it would fall, Amalek would prevail. And so Joshua certainly remembers this and knows he doesn't want anything like that to happen. He doesn't want any defeat. He wants complete annihilation of these people and complete obedience. He was not willing to have something like this happen to his people. He stayed with the javelin outstretched in faith depending on the Lord for victory. It is not some sort of magic symbol. That's not what's happening here. This is a tactile way to see his faith. Are we not also called... To act in faith and see our God do the works that he says that he will do. This is not some sort of manipulation by Joshua. Joshua, instead, is obeying and showing his great zeal for the Lord and showing that God's promises are real and that he takes them as serious. He's so zealous. I love this guy. The spoil, then, the livestock are taken. And here we are with one verse left to help teach us. The king is killed. Now, probably what's happening is he's probably not hung like we're thinking as his, as his mode of death. He's most likely actually killed before that, whether it's by sword or some other means. The hanging here is about signaling something to the people. And there's nobody left an eye except the soldiers. So what is happening here is showing to all these soldiers this is what it means to reject God. And we will show you what this means in front of you. This man was most likely either hung from a tree on a rope or he was actually impaled and put so that all could see. Now we think of this as grotesque. Again, we've, we've dealt with this subject. How could God put all these people to destruction like this? Again, remember the holiness of God and remember how sinful and how terrible rebellion is against him. This is to show rebellion will be judged. Now, according to Deuteronomy 21, a man hung on a tree is one who is cursed by God, but that he should not be left hung on a tree all night. Now, they stay true to the law. They don't leave him there to rot and decay and become disgusting. Instead, they take him down, and they bury him. They put this huge pile of rubble over top, and actually, it's a great heap of stones, just like the king of Jericho, just like who we just saw at the end of chapter 7, just like Achan. And So by the end of the narrative, you have this complete and utter destruction of the Canaanites in the city of Ai. Where once was defeat and fear and dismay, there is now victory and confidence in Yahweh and humility as they follow him. What then are we to learn from this battle? In this part of the story, there are tons of stuff that we can can pull out and, and, and learn. Uh, let me give you a few. It's, it's reiterated again that covenant faithfulness to Yahweh brings prosperity and success. Or well, we learn, I love this one, we really learn about God's character. Not only is he holy and just and his anger is against sin, but we see here the unity of his character that he is love and that he is gracious and forgiving to Israel who deserves to be cut off. And yet now he is reconciling them back in a relationship. It's beautiful. There's a resounding note also of God's judgment against sin. All of I is is demolished. But more than all those things, all those things are right. I want us to ask one question. Who was it who won the battle of I? To begin today, I told you this silly illustration about Hudson, right? Trying to lift me up and uh, me putting my hands on the counter and doing the work actually to allow him to do so. When we we ask this question though seriously about this, we should have that in our mind for a moment. Who was it really who won the battle of Ai? Who's really doing the heavy lifting? Who actually has the power to make this happen? Look at the amount of detail because I'll tell you what you wanna think about is the detail, the planning, the maneuvering, all the different stuff that the men of of Israel and Joshua do. I mean Joshua gets and gathers 30,000 men together. He gives them the plan. They march through the night. That's no small thing. 5,000 break off an ambush. The main army pretends to run away. Joshua signals for the ambush to take the city. They take the city. The smoke signals the reverse. 25,000 attack. 5,000 surround the other side, and they kill all the, these, these soldiers. They return to the city. They kill all the inhabitants of the city. They hang and then bury the king of Ai. Who won the battle of Ai? It certainly seems to us that it was Joshua and the Israelites. But you know the real answer. It was a divine warrior. The one that we met back at the end of chapter 5. The one who gave Jericho into Joshua's hands. The one who promised that he would not forsake his people. The one who required covenant faithfulness, but who guaranteed success and prosperity. Think about it for a minute. In this story... He gives them this word of encouragement right off the bat and commands them to go in right at the beginning. He gives the command for ambush. That's not Joshua's clever tactic. That was a a gift from God saying, do this. He even gives this incredibly personal interjection. I don't know how, this is a weird and glorious part in verse 18, that God would speak into the midst of what's going on. They're retreating, they're running away, and this is the point that God comes in, and Joshua writes this down for us to know that God is in every detail of this, although it may seem as though man is running the show here. It is in fact God who is doing this. Even Joshua in verse 26 acknowledges this when he's holding out the javelin, because he's trusting God alone. There's nothing magic about that. He's not hitting people with the javelin while it's up there. He is holding it true to trust God and God alone. So the question is the same. Who won the battle of Ai? It was the divine warrior. It is Yahweh himself. Praise be to him. I mean, it is our God. And we're all happy about that. That's the good, but you realize that we're not done. There's a problem that we all have. Many times we hear a message like this, and we're glad by the time we get to the end that God is the one who's ultimately responsible for everything. Praise God. All glory to God and no responsibility to me. It's just easier that way. It works, right? That's what we want to do. You know, glory to God, blame on my theology, I don't have to do anything, let him do that. I want to see miracles, let him work things out. He can do it, who, who, he doesn't need me, he's God. Have we not heard that said before? Maybe we've said it ourselves. God doesn't need me. You're right, God doesn't need you. He actually commands you to obey him. I'll say this, I can sit and allow God to do whatever he wants, if if that's what I really wanna do, but that means that I am blaming my disobedience and laziness on the sovereignty of God. I have taken something wonderful and glorious and excused myself from following every word that he has given me to do. He works through human agency. Sometimes he works miraculously. Think Think about Jericho, as he goes around and around and around, the walls come tumbling down. It's amazing, but in this one, we see very regular means, human agency working in this area. Consider the amount of work the Israelites did in this battle. They worked hard, they obeyed, they strategized, and they implemented the strategy that Yahweh told them to do. Yes, it was Yahweh, the divine warrior, but it is his will, listen to this, it is his will to use our love and obedience by the Spirit's work and hard work for his glory. He uses that. So what is the message today? It's simple. Yahweh is the divine warrior who delivers, who saves. And it is his will to use the simple means of love for him and obedience. Don't take God's sovereignty and excuse yourself from obeying and loving and knowing this God. Let us love our God with our hearts, souls, and minds and then act in accordance with that love. Let us obey. Let's pray. God, we rely on you completely. We thank you for your great grace to us. I pray that our time together today would be spent well so that you would encourage one another in the midst of every trial and struggle or in the midst of joy, that we would rejoice together in what you're doing. You are good, and I pray that we would react to this rightly, recognizing, God, that you are the divine warrior, that you have sovereignty over all, but that you call us to obey. Would we be willing, Lord, to hold these things together and be thankful that you would choose to bring us along and ask of us to obey you? We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.